What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing this week, man? Doing all right, man. BTS, number one song in the country. Conveniently, the first time they dropped a song all in English. It's uh, very easy for them. They're, they're huge. Bantam boys, back at it again. They are huge. And we've had a crazy amount of number one songs this year. Uh, eight n- number one songs in the country. De- that debuting were directly to number debuting. one. Debuting, right, correct. Um, so it's, uh, it's only going to continue as there's uh, a Lord project anticipated uh, adele project anticipated mm-hmm. we might get the double digits so we'll we'll see and if bts keeps dropping heat like this uh they might get a couple debut number ones all yeah. on their own so black pink coming up as well we'll see something definitely gonna pop off that um and if you want to pop off this podcast or if you think we're popping off give us Ooh. that that subscribe on uh, youtube youtube.com slash nostalgia pod soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod and on itunes and also follow us on twitter uh at nostalgia pod unfortunately dave and i feel like we've been doing this too often the last couple of years we have to start off with another major celebrity death and this one uh really hit me on saturday night when when you texted me uh informing me that chadwick boseman had died at the age of 43 years old and come to find out he had been battling colon cancer for the last four years uh really shocking um really saddening you know my my immediate thought went through all these videos of him being asked to do the the wakanda forever thing right and and certainly he got asked to do it to a point and he said in interviews like i hate when people make me do it almost as like a like i'm a prop instead of doing it like as a salute to me right um and and, uh, that made sense but i i look back to those videos now and wonder like how exhausted was he uh, after possibly undergoing treatment that day or just feeling not like himself? Um, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that this was kept uh, pretty much a secret. I, I didn't see many people who were aware that this was going yeah. on at all. What was your reaction? What are your, your initial thoughts after hearing this news? Yeah, uh, obviously, I was completely shocked, taken aback, which I think was kind of the universal you know, response. No one seemed to know, as you said, which in, in, in this time, 2020, the fact that something could go completely unleaked for such a long time is pretty, uh, pretty astounding. And then when you think that he had been diagnosed with cancer and then proceeded to make multiple Marvel films and the five bloods and 21 bridges and uh, Marshall as well. Like it, it's, it's kind of crazy. You know, to to think that like for the majority of the time he was in the public consciousness, he was battling cancer, and no one had any idea. It, it's pretty crazy. It it's absolutely crazy and just completely um, uh, saddening and dismaying. You know, it's um, testament to him uh, that he played so many iconic roles in his life. You know, from Jackie Robinson to Thurgood Marshall to. Uh, James Brown, you know, he's embodied um, people, like actual people um, in, in their stories who are legendary, as well as a legendary black superhero who was, he was the star of a movie that uh, had a huge cultural impact 
um, it made over a billion dollars. Like it's a, a hmm. maybe he wasn't the most, um, you know, enjoyable part of that film. I think like Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger has gotten a lot of love for that. I think um, just the story and, and the, uh, obviously Kugler's direction has gotten a lot of love. And I think sometimes Chadwick playing like the thankless, like, uh, hero role in a sense where he's just kind of mm-hmm. you know like the the steady person and all of this is gets overlooked but really just a, I think an amazing career and uh, it's hard to to think like how many other things he could have uh, how many other great roles he could have done and just not to get the opportunity now yeah uh, yeah of course yeah and it's being the Black Panther uh, Black Panther grows seven hundred million dollars in the U S one of only four movies to do that uh, it was incredibly uh important infectious moment i think that that goes without saying and you know kind of that understated grace that came with bozeman's portrayal of t'challa really you know stands stands through and you know black panther is my favorite uh mcu movie and i think it's uh definitely one of the best ones because one of the few examples where you have directorial style really shining through in the usually homogenized MCU, you know, Ryan Coogler uh, brought a lot of other elements into a superhero IP mass market entertainment film. You know, mm-hmm. think of the stuff with uh, Sterling K. Brown. Think of the stuff when uh, Killmonger's fading away, right? And like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the remember everyone remembers like the stark, like purple background and and, and all that, right? And you know, I think Bozeman you know, portraying T'Challa and having people see that on screen. I think the, the, the common refrain has been that actually seeing black characters as royalty, you know, mm-hmm. um, went a long way. We've always gotten black characters portrayed, historically speaking, usually as slaves, right? But to see something like that, something so triumphant and, and proud, you know, and not mm-hmm. uh, uh, afraid to be what it is, which is black, you know, uh, it, it earned all, all that money. And, I mean, just think, and one of the things I was thinking, I was like, oh, geez, they're going to make a Black Panther too. I believe it's dated for 2022. Coogler is returning, which I think was a bit of a surprise given how great a filmmaker he is. What do they do now? Because obviously they're going to revisit that film. And I, I guess the obvious plan is have Letitia Wright Shuri take over. But I mean, I mean, who, I mean, who really cares about that? Because it's just yeah. the loss of, of Bozeman is it, it just... It's just so, so tough, and I was really affected by this too. I mean, I felt it was some like real grief because, and I was just thinking, like, in terms of American, uh, African American actors, you know, I mean, m- most of the big, big black actors these days are English, you know, mm-hmm. Idris, Oyega, uh, re- more new people like Michaela Cole, Letitia Wright, uh, David Oello, right? Um, yeah. Apart from like Michael B there really isn't someone who's reached the, the top tier of stardom. That's African-American. Usually they're English guys, right? Yeah. Like, certainly anything, in that it, age bracket too. Yeah. Like, and like, it's funny that like, you think about Bozeman's career. He's not that much younger than Will Smith, but Will Smith was in movies such a long stretch of time that you cannot think about them in the same way when it comes to movies. Right. I think the only one I could really compare would be Mahershala Ali in terms of like the length mm-hmm. of their careers when they started becoming real, uh, movie actors yeah um Daniel Kal- Kaluuya. Still persists, but like yeah daniel kaluuya but he's english yeah. as well i was um, gonna say he must yep but i mean even, when, even even in general like 
you have Will Smith, you have Jamie Foxx. Mm-hmm. After that, and then Herschel, obviously, who's pretty well, nice. Denzel, obviously. And Denzel's the OG. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, like, who, who, who's, who's been next up for, for American, African Americans? Probably O'Shea Jackson Jr., I guess. Corey Hawkins. I was wondering if, if Winston Duke might fit that bill. You know, That's he's. A good one. And I was actually, when I was thinking about what, what does the Black Panther franchise do now, I was wondering if Winston Duke might be kind of tabbed to fill in yeah. in that role in some way. Um, you know, but he was obviously in us playing the, you know, one of the lead roles as the father. And, uh, I, I could see him potentially stepping up, getting some more roles, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. Cause oh, Brian Tyree Henry hasn't really started oh, yeah. much, you know, he's been mainly a TV star. So, so I guess the Lakeith Stanfield might, yeah, be, yeah, that's probably, probably it. into that role. Um, and I guess if, wherever you sit with Donald Glover, he's probably also somewhere in yeah. that conversation. How, so it's basically Atlanta how much he wants and, to act, really. Yeah. Right. It's like Atlanta and then uh, Black Panthers, where you're getting a lot of these names yeah. from. <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, when I when I was thinking about it, it's uh, it, all of these roles he played were almost like uh, saintly in some sense. I mean, especially yeah. you, you think about Storm and Norman. You know, the, the last role people have seen him in a, in a big movie. Uh, and the five bloods, uh, he was almost like this Jesus like character yeah. in a lot of senses. And, uh, to lose a guy that not only portrayed those type of characters and had that gravitas on screen, but also from all accounts, everything we've heard was just a really sweet, thoughtful, inspiring and, mm-hmm. and caring person off it. It's like, right, man, it really does seem like, like the best people are here the shortest <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, really just saddening and, it leaves a hole that I think is going to be hard to fill to your point. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking a lot about probably my favorite scene from Defy Bloods when you have that like narration about Storm and Norman, Norman and he was our Malcolm and our Martin. I feel like mm-hmm. that's a quote you could almost apply to Chadwick in the way he uh, represented black people on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just, just, just kind of like an uncalculable loss and which makes it even worse because of his age and because of how unexpected it was. He does have another movie coming up called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which uh, is a Netflix film that's coming up. Uh, and Netflix actually was about to do some press for that film. I obviously called that off due to the unfortunate timing. So we will see him briefly again. But I would advise everyone to obviously watch The Five Bloods if you haven't. Easy to watch on Netflix. But also uh, Marshall. Marshall's really great. You know, Marshall's a movie I caught later. I saw it on an airplane. But it's just one of those like compulsively watchable movies that has a really strong lead performance and teaches you a bit of history if you didn't know it. So that's obviously about Thurgood Marshall. He was really good in that one. So mm. I, I haven't seen the one about James Brown. Get on up. I want to seek that one out. So me neither. It's interesting because I think it was uh, the the two like co-stars or uh, I guess he was Chadwick was obviously the star, and I'm forgetting uh, who's like secondary character was in that, but um, are both gone. I saw a tweet that they both had passed away in recent years, so it'd be interesting to go back and see if there's anything to glean from that movie at all. But huge loss, huge rip. Chadwick gone way too soon. Um, fuck cancer. Let's move on though to uh, some music. We're going to start with, a, I think, an album that brought us both up this week because I think we kind of needed it after the weekend with the, the Chadwick Boseman news. Dua Lipa's uh, Club Future Nostalgia DJ Remix album, which we've been you know, kind of talking about and saying we were looking forward to some big names attached to this. Um, 
but it really going in, I was expecting more like um, what we got with the Charlie XCX um, or was it the hundred Gex album? hundred Gex album. I'm yeah. sorry. Where yeah. Charlie XCX. Tree of Clues. Yes. Um, with the hundred Gex album where it was kind of like the song sounded very similar, but they were kind of just like, adding like the flair of whatever artist mm-hmm. was kind of doing the remix or, or jumping on. Yeah. This was like start to finish. Like you were just getting on the dance floor of a club for an hour and uh, it running straight through real remixes from different DJs, although helmed mostly by um, the blessed Madonna um, who was doing most of it, most mm-hmm. of the remixing. I mean, it's, it, it definitely wasn't what I expected. How were how you feeling going in and after listening to it? Yeah, I didn't really know what much, too much of what to expect either. Hearing that levitating remix single featuring the, act, the, the, the other Madonna, the more famous Madonna, as well as Missy Elliott, perhaps maybe changed expectations for people that heard it because you expect it to be more like all A-list features and guest spots and stuff, more like a traditional remix album or soundtrack or something. But what was that to me about this is it's, it's actual remixing. I think remixing is a word that most people these days don't even actually remember what it's supposed to mean, where you actually remix and master the song because you've changed it. You didn't just add a new verse when you didn't actually right. do anything else the rest of the mix, right? And this is a really refreshing way to, I think, present your previous re-release work back in a, I think, justified way because nowadays what's really, really monotonous and tiresome is the about a week or two after album comes out, you get the deluxe edition, which is just all the leftovers. It's a way to just get more streams, keep your chart position, a uh, little baby, use this to stay number one for several more weeks. And sometimes, yeah, th- th- there's a highlight from those, those cuts, like um, We Paid, Little Baby's Case. But usually, they're songs that are cut for a reason. Yeah, the, the, the baby deluxe, take my word, you can pass on it. Um, but in this case, you know, like Gex, it's justified because it's, you know, actual new music. And that's, that's really cool. And, you know, you, you going in, like, you know, oh, this the Blessed Madonna, this American, like, techno DJ, she's kind of like the, e, the EP on this. Yet, there's a whole lot of other DJs and producers that are doing their own spins on songs from Future Nostalgia. And that was also unexpected to me. I didn't expect all these other people to be on this, you know? Um, and I think also, like, traditional remix albums usually you're still gonna like the original song more than these but this one because this album has such slick transitions where you're literally going from track to track and it sounds so uh you know genuine and like like the way the way that the pitches were pitched up and were pitched down and everything just seems so seamless and it really does feel like you're at a club set from a dj yeah, and that's really cool. You know, Dua Lipa, she's European. Uh, Euro dance, Euro club scene is a huge thing. Not not nearly as a big a deal in the U.S., but it's a major part of uh, going to see live music in Europe. And I think this definitely nails that vibe. That's really cool. So, and and there's still some some uh, cool twists on some of those classic, new classic songs from Dua. So I think it's pretty fun. Yeah, no, definitely very fun. I was telling you before we got on that. Um, I wish I had listened to this on my run this morning. I chose to listen to a different album that we're not talking about, but it was a lot, lot sleepier. Um, this would have definitely gotten you going. And like you said, it transitions so well. Sometimes the songs just kind of like blend together. Yeah. But if you just kind of lose yourself within them and by like the fifth track or sixth track, you're like, oh shit, I've gone through like 
six songs, but it felt like only two or three, like the yeah. way it kind of flows. It's really cool. To me. It's so, so good on this album. Um, you know, you mentioned the levitating uh, remix with Madonna and Missy Elliott. Um, any other tracks that you really liked the remix or thought stood out? Yeah, yeah. I really liked the Pretty Please remix yeah. by Masters at Work. Notably on this album, there are songs that have been remixed multiple times. Sometimes they're shorts, not the full version of the song. But that one really stood out to me. Um, uh, just, uh, just the way it was upbeat. And I think what was kind of cool about this this album is there's a bunch of moments where like Dua's vocals are changed from the original song, like levitating. It's like, it's a slower delivery than the, the original song. And like some of those choices kind of stood out to me in, in, mm-hmm. in a cool way. Um, so yeah, the pretty please by matches at work. That was probably my favorite one. Uh, Break my heart. Yes. The, the uh, this, I believe the, the second one. Yep. At the end, you have like the violins coming in doing the uh, from the original beat. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a really cool touch, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, kind of like moments like that. And I think on Hallucinate, that probably stands out for the Hollaback Girl uh, yeah, yeah. sample. Does that drop, which notably hits way harder than an actual new Gwen Stefani feature later in the track list on uh, the Mark Ronson physical remix. So yeah. kind of interesting there. But uh, no. yeah, Break My Heart and Pretty Please, probably my favorites. I mean, I think you hit the the ones that I would have picked, but even the first track, Future Nostalgia, I just think mm-hmm. it comes in so hot um, and really sets the tone. And then it glides into the uh, the cool, the Jada G remix. And it's it's uh, Future Nostalgia is only like, it's under three minutes in this remix. And the way it flows in, it just really gets the album moving and, and churning so quickly. I thought that was really cool. Um, but yeah, I agree. The The second Break My Heart, was probably the one that said I said out most to me. I think it was the Moody Man remix. Yeah, the Moody Man remix. There we go. Um, yeah, definitely interesting. Always a pleasure to listen to more Dua. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe we'll see some more of this from some of these pop artists. Uh, also, shout out to Madonna and Missy who are like <laughs> just gonna jump on to a Dua track because we know we need that at this point and i mean i guess that's kind of a shot at them but just that their star has kind of fallen off and they're like let's let's mm. work with this younger artist or at least like sure. attach ourselves so you can draw artistic comparisons between madonna and do especially sure. off this second album so that's a kind of a cool passing of the torch i guess even though the torch was technically long since passed as you're saying um yeah i also shout out Dua Lipa's uh spot on jimmy kimmel like a month ago she was actually really good on that mm-hmm. so any do is is good with me absolutely uh an artist that i don't know if you feel the same way about is jaden smith who uh <laughs> Sire, had, my guy yeah has had a pretty interesting career i'd say at this oh, point yeah. um obviously probably most well known for being will smith's son and also mm-hmm. probably one of the weirdest celebrities we have him and willow are yeah. truly genuinely 100 percent their own people or aliens or however they would kind of describe Mm -hmm. themselves (laughs) sure here's my question though do you think he's actually as weird as he used to be young Jaden, i believe he's only 20 years old at this time he's sorry he's 22 years old when we first talked about him he was only 20 years old um you know he's been making music for a while now he's acted in spots he definitely is a legitimate working entertainer at this point he's gone on tour you know, like he's, mm-hmm. he's legit at this point. 
But do you think he's actually as uh, as weird as he once was when he used to just tweet literal nonsense with about his third eye, you know? Yeah, no, probably not. Um I I think it's it's interesting because I think Jaden at that point was doing a lot of things because artistically it felt provocative to be saying and doing these things. Um, I don't know if he's ever been explicit about what his sexuality is and not that that really matters, but there was the whole thing about him and Tyler, the creator possibly dating it at one point. And I, I I don't even know if that was even ever confirmed. I think it was a joke. Yeah. Just something he was throwing out. And it's like, I think a lot of what he used to do was more provocative and not really thought out. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think what we hear, especially on cool tape volume three is he's finding a bit more of like a, a honing an ability to hone uh, a direction at least. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas I think sire, when we talked about it in 2017 and then Eris last year, I think it was a little bit more bombastic, a little bit more, I don't want to say it wasn't more ambitious, but I think just maybe a little bit more, out there then this feels a lot more grounded to me you know it's funny comparing this to Eris because when I listen to Eris what immediately stood out to me is the Kanye and Tyler influences Mm. in his musical choices and great influences to have of course but if you're not adding your own spin or doing something in such a way that justifies making stuff that's such an obvious homage probably going to fall flat, not going to remain in people's ears. And I think that's usually the case with a lot of his stuff. I mean, he, he has had hits. He has had sticky songs. You can check the numbers on some of his songs, you know, he, he has had success, but you know, on Eris, remember he, he was kind of dabbling in some like low rent, like XXX Tentacion Florida rap metal stuff. You know, it's like, he still kind of will throw any dart he can at the wall. He just oftentimes hits the window, you know? So uh, I still give him credit for kind of doing whatever he wants. And again, uh, and we shouldn't forget he has a lot of security in his uh, life. So you can do this with a career, but cool. Three volume three definitely surprised me in the sense that it's much more understated. It's a lot more singing. It's like, it, it's softer. It's, it's just a lot softer. There's no boasts anywhere near the level of icon, which was the first time I really made any noise with music, you know, but this so, is it good. I think sometimes it's good, but it's it's still really long. It's a lot of songs, and so yeah. he, he he's he takes a lot of swings, and he's still gonna miss a lot. But I think once in a while he can still still kind of hit, and that, that's that's cool enough, I guess. Yeah, I agree. And and the you know the the direction of this album feels a lot more uh, jazzy, a lot more like almost like Michael Bublé-ish at points. <laughs> uh, like it's kind of yeah. weird. Uh, I was thinking like soft like like soft pop, soft rock almost yeah like soft uh, pop i don't know the 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 comparison i came to in, in listening to this was Shwayze. do you remember that that group Shwayze? they yeah. had like corona and lime like uh mm-hmm. it was like a, a black guy and a white and a white guy and yeah. the white guy would play guitar and sing. yeah and then Shwayze would rap and i really kind of got that sense of it where it was just kind of like mellow more toned down just kind of easy listening a lot of the time and uh, kind of sad boy through, uh, throughout, but at the same time, I didn't hate it. Uh, I, I thought it was at least listenable at most yeah. in most parts, and um, I think there were actually a couple songs I really liked, uh, like Rainbow Rainbow Up app. I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the closer, um, Boys and Girls, was a decent track. Um, 
And there, oh, and Lucy, I also kind of liked, had like a soft, uh, like a chill vibe uh, surfer track kind of feel sure. to it. So, yeah. you know, he, he's trying some things, but just, I think, honing it a little bit more. He's like crafting it a little bit more. It sounds like you liked a couple of the tracks as well. I also liked Rainbow Bop a lot. I believe that single came out two weeks ago. Uh, I think that that's one where that has the hook, that has the vocal delivery, the way he does the hook. It's a really catchy way. And that's kind of almost, it almost feels like a spoken word rap. It's not like a true hip hop song, but it has that kind of hip hop cadence to it. I, I like Rainbow Bop a lot. Also has an hilarious line, which is what you'd expect from Jaden Nori calls himself the young KRS in your Providence. Just to have the audacity to compare yourself to KRS-One is ridiculous and just oozes confidence. So mm-hmm. salute to Jaden because that is ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I think Rainbow Bap is cool to me. Um, Meta-wise, it was nice to see him collab with uh, Bieber once again. Let's not mm-hmm. forget that uh, now or never. Uh, how long ago was that? Like six, eight years, maybe. Yeah, six, seven, oh, something like that. A long time. Um, probably more than that, actually. Probably around twenty ten. Jane was very young when when they first collabed. So that's 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 cool. Uh, I like Sunburnt. Sunburnt was interesting to me because that reminded me some more of like Eris, right? Where like the song is is a little bit softer. Like most of the album. Next thing you know, he's doing like really hardcore rapping for the last like twenty seconds. That kind of like brief stark switch up reminded me a lot of what happened on Eris. And I also liked Endless Summer with Rory. You know, Rory and Jaden actually make sense to me as kind of kindred spirits. And I thought that song sounded pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, like I think like all the Jaden projects, there's stuff to like, stuff to immediately never listen to again, <laughs> stuff that's kind of in between. And it just never, depends what you're looking for for them. Never say never, 2011, by the way. Yeah. So, I was close. You were very close. Um, yeah. You know, I, uh, I, th- I I like this more than I liked Eris. So I think uh, Jaden keep trying stuff. I liked how it sounded a little bit like 90s rap-ish at points, but maybe not like the traditional 90s rap, kind of like nice and smooth or cr- even like crazy town at certain points. I was like, all right, well, yeah. you know, it's it's something different. I appreciate the, the, the swings at least. So Cool Tape Volume 3, we'll be adding a track probably to our Nostalgia Best of 2020 on Spotify. Follow that. And uh, Katy Perry also might be getting a track on there because she returned with Smile after Witness in 2017. Maybe the uh, the harshest review we've ever given a big album, would you say? It's One of them. Yeah. yeah. We, 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 used to, we used to be a little harsher back then. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember that episode. We also talked negatively about Bryson Tiller, uh, True to Self, the very disappointing sophomore album from him, and Little Yachty's debut on Teenage Emotions, which is hot garbage. I stand by all wit- those. Yeah, and then you have Witness, which was a just a complete swing and a miss that followed up a really cringy run of press from Katy Perry. Let's not forget the weird, awkward dancing she did on SNL with Migos for that song Bon Appetit. You know, it was a it was a tough time, and I think since then, I think most people have since you know almost accepted the fact that Katy Perry has now had a different point in her career. Teenage Dream was 10 years ago pop stars eventually do crest and clearly Katy perry has crested but maybe it's not all bad i don't know what do you think about uh smile i thought it was mostly bad <laughs> um if i'm being completely honest i mean it's inoffensive it's listenable yeah. you know uh low range pop i'd say but yeah you know 
I think when I was thinking, how did Katy Perry go from being, you know, the person that wrote and saying, I kissed a girl or teenage dream to now those songs felt kind of dangerous and new at that point. And she really opened the door to a lot of singers singing about that type of material in more explicit ways. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of hard to imagine pop getting to the point that where you can have a song like WAP if you're not, you know, kind of breaking the glass with I kissed a girl. Like it's just, there's there's steps to this, you know, but um, I think at at this point, Katy Perry really isn't making music that feels dangerous or if it like, like it has stakes at all. And it's going to lead to these songs being pretty middle of the road. And uh, aside from maybe three tracks on here, which I thought were decent, I really found the rest of it pretty forgettable. Um, were you in the same boat or how are you feeling about it? Yeah, I, mean, I think there was there was a highlight or two. We can get to that in a second. But yeah, I mean, if you think about Katy Perry, her whole career, her the whole span of her great success is just from a different time in music. Mm-hmm. You know, right. she's someone who's who found success through traditional radio. That mm-hmm. is now very much the exception to the rule. You know, she was way before the modern streaming landscape. And at the same time, that success she found was legit. You know, Teenage Dream had five number one singles. Only Michael Jackson has done that. You know, that is a big deal. Uh, she has 140 million records sold. That's on par with Jay-Z, you know? Like, it, it, it's, she's, she's, she's per, per, and that's the thing. Her status is secured. So I think now she's at a different point where she can just kind of make these albums where, yeah, there's maybe a song or two people like, but people will show up to see Katy Perry still perform in big venues because she, she already has all these monster hits that people yeah. want to see, you know? It's kind of like uh, like Madonna, I guess. She had Madame mm-hmm. X come out, go number one, but really went into number one because of all those ticket bundles. People want to see Madonna perform, not because they give a fuck about her album she made <laughs> in, in her 50s, right? right? So I think Katy Perry, who's notably much younger than Madonna still, but I feel like she's kind of getting to that point, you know, where like it's a pop star that's past. And I mean, you just think about what pop music is now. I think Ariana, just the production choices are just on a whole different level with her, even if vocally mm-hmm. they're similar. And then obviously people like Billie Eilish and Charlie XCX are just way weirder and just mm-hmm. in a completely different stratosphere. And then there's also people like, like Dua Lipa and Kim Petras who make music that's way more indebted to the past. Katy Perry's not doing that either. So, and, and, and she's not as, I think, relevant to younger people the way people like Selena Gomez are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think as a pop star, she's just in a different place in her career. Well, yeah. It happens, you know? I mean, she's probably more well-known now, especially to families and to, you know, a, a different demographic for being on an American Idol, being the judge there, you know, and uh, being the, the artist who birthed Left Shark, it, no matter <laughs> how inadvertent or some people might say chosen that that decision was it's just kind of she's become this meme and i think i do like that on this album she kind of just kind of like leans into that like whereas on witness it felt like she still was trying to be a little bit more edgy and and you know like oh really get taylor swift with this track or really stick it to him (laughs) uh here she's just like yeah i make inoffensive music uh i'm trying to tell you think positive you'll get through it and that and that's my brand now and sure okay fine like if that's what you want to do you're going to lean into it cool and i found a couple of these tracks okay smile i've heard 
dozens of times. That's my favorite one. Like everywhere, but definitely like that that beat and that bass just really slap, really stands out. Um, Harley's in Hawaii stood out as an attract just because Poof. it was so different. Yeah, I was gonna say your guy Pooth co-wrote that. He's he's always on a heater, but it's, it's a little bit more R and B, a little bit more toned down, which I liked. Mm-hmm. And then um, the first track, never really over. Sure. I thought was a, a pretty decent like pop song. So um, other than that, uh, I don't know. You know, because I I think the turning point for her was probably Firework, right? Because she really went from being that artist that was like writing these songs about these like sexual experiences and like you mm-hmm. know these dalliances that were edgy to being like i'm the empowerment artist now and that firework became uh, i mean i had the tiger i mean it's like all this yeah roar sorry but it's all this same stuff it's she really shifted and i think it's hard to go back after that yeah i mean another another aspect to this would be that on teenage dream she worked with max martin Benny Blanco and Dr. Luke. I believe Dr. Luke co-produced every one of those number ones. Obviously, very few people are publicly working with Dr. Luke after everything that happened with Kesha, but you know, maybe maybe it would serve her to get back with uh Benny and Max, who are still very much going strong as super producers go, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's not like there's nameless people on the smile credits. That's not the case at all, but it seems like that original brain trust maybe would help her but you know if you think about her original music too she wasn't the it wasn't like amazing lyrics either back then you know mm. and like i think teenage dream it's not that teenage dream is this lyrical masterwork it's almost just appreciated for its subtlety and how it's portraying losing your virginity you know because mm-hmm. it's not super obvious versus i kissed a girl is super in your face and edgy and helped kind of reestablish her as an artist yeah. after several stops and starts with trying to get a career um so yeah, at this point, I'm just like, yeah, you know, Katie, do your thing. I don't think anyone really expects you to be this 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 great voice to give too much. It's, I think she's, but she also, I think, is a good presence for something like American Idol, you know? Mm-hmm. She just had a kid with Orlando Bloom. Cool. Keep Orlando Bloom going, too. I like him. You know? Do you know, do you know the name of the child? Uh, I, I forget. I read it. It's Daisy. Daisy Bloom. Get it? Do you I get it, it, Dave? All right. And it's fitting. It's fitting the brand. It is. Why don't we move on, though? We talked enough Katy Perry to say. Let's talk Disclosure now, dropping their third studio album, Energy. Uh, Guy and Howard Lawrence back on the the ones and twos, the bass and the drums, doing what they got to do to pump this out. And we we talked about them just a little while ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. They released, like I believe it was a five or six song EP earlier in the year. Ecstasy. Um, ecstasy which we look we really like some of the tracks off that and we i think yeah. we were, were ex- yeah i think we were expecting uh the the eclectic sound in those songs really bringing in a lot of other influences to kind of come come to fruition on the full-length album energy and uh they released a deluxe album dave so they didn't release it after the fact they're just like here's all the tracks although i'm sure we'll get a deluxe deluxe eventually but that's the thing Uh, about this deluxe though it's not it's a fake deluxe it's just the entire ecstasy ep and some previously released songs like his monster smash talk with khalid it's like a fake deluxe there's no extra actual bonus tracks no but it it runs an hour and 22 so it's it's annoying that like the not the, the standard issue wasn't actually on digital streaming services you only have the deluxe option that that's a little pretentious to me but that's probably a label decision 
And this actually feels a lot to me like a dual album or a double album. Um, because I think the first half up until about thinking about you interlude. So they were the track mm-hmm. right after energy yeah. is where I would, I would have cut this album off. Yeah. I would have you been like, it. yeah, save save the rest. The first half of this is freaking fire. And the he, second half I'm he, like, oh, really lulls me to sleep. Uh, you know, and it, that hurts me to say because we're cutting off a, a song with Kalani and Sid that I think could have fit really well in either one of their albums, but just felt sleepy for this album. Um, but that first half, man, the, the first four songs, I would say, Starts or so even strong. the first five, really, really strong. Uh, re, re, how are you feeling about Disclosure's energy? <laughs> yeah, feeling very similar because the energy is very high in the beginning and less so at the end. And then if you listen to Deluxe, it kind of comes back when you start listening to the Ecstasy EP again. Like Tondo again, like Tondo, just the, the, the drums in that song are, are insane. That's a, that yeah. a clear highlight of the EP. But yeah, in the beginning, you know, uh, definitely continues what we were seeing and perhaps predicting following Ecstasy. Disclosure is a duo that are not afraid to change who they are, what they sound like. They actually gave, a, I think, a really blunt quote to enemy where they said yes yeah, some people just want us to make latch all the time or over and over again however they said it and yeah we might lose fans along the way but we don't want to do that and like i think they did a lot of reckoning following caracol which well, i think had a mixed reception as an album but certainly had huge highlights still and they just they, they've evolved as producers which is exciting to me still because as we've said a lot most electronic producers that are you know, artists first, producers second, they, they, they're not that interesting. Right? We talked about the Kygos and the Marshmallows in the sense that there's not a whole lot to talk about, you know, yet Disclosure has found a way to stay relevant and stay engaging and I think still keep a fan base beyond like hardcore EDM fans because they're willing to change it up. And you listen to Energy and you hear a song like Dua Mali Mali featuring uh-huh. a Mali singer you know, and the African pop influence, that's really cool. Haven't really heard him do a whole lot of that besides a little bit on ecstasy in March, you know, that's awesome. Then you hear a song before that, My High with Amine and Slow Tie. You're like, oh wait, this is like fucking hip house. This is really mm-hmm. cool too. And then how about the first track, Watch Your Step featuring Kellis. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that shit fucking goes, dude. Are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> That shit's so fucking hot. It's so good. Yeah, honestly, Watch Your Step, Lavender to My High is like maybe the best three-song run we've had in months. Like, just, it's crazy. Chanel Trace on Lavender, the way he just like growls over that beat. It's so sexual and like rousing. It's like crazy, man. It's nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I, I was just like really blown away. And even Energy. The Energy is like the track that, the people who don't really like like to like dive deep into electronic or house music but like want to have a bop are like okay this is perfect you know <laughs> yeah. where your where your focus goes your energy flows the beat drops you can hop around at a festival it's it's late mm. it's fine um but w- w- like you said when when they start to really play with these influences and infuse their music with these different artists i mean even if you just look at who they were working with on caracol i mean the weekend sam smith um lord Lord, miguel miguel i mean like these weren't like 
art these were artists that a lot of people knew and there's a couple of big names on this but i feel like we're like the standouts like you said are from people that we aren't super familiar with because it feels like disclosure is inspired a little bit more working with them whereas you bring in someone like common and that track falls completely short or oh, yeah know your worth with Khalid, I think also yep. fell really they short. did not make talk 2.0 with that one. No doubt. No. And it's, and even these songs with Sid for the most part, I mean, birthday is all right. But like, like I said, I, I feel like it just doesn't fit for this. And Sid is such a interesting singer. She has a really sultry voice and a, just a really cool background that I think could have really infused these songs with some, a different type of energy but just really fell flat. And I almost feel like let, let disclosure just be weird and they'll continue to make super interesting music. Yeah. So it's, it's a hard album in some ways. Cause I feel like they had so many good pieces and then we're almost trying to like meet in the middle with those fans. Like you talked about that just want latch all the time. Right. Well, and, and hearing that they recorded over 200 songs for this album, this album also was done and ready by the end of 2019. You just think, I mean, shit, what else is on the cutting room floor? Because there's such range and variety on energy, whether it's the standard or the deluxe, that they can probably do anything. And usually it's good or at least passable. Even the stuff we don't like isn't necessarily bad. It's not just not nearly as engaging because Disclosure sets a high bar for themselves, right? I think of uh, Guy's production on Blue World, perhaps the highlight Mm -hmm. of the Macmore Pastures album, Circles, right? Mm -hmm. That's just some really out there production that Mac happens to ride really great. Rest in, rest in peace. But like that weirdness is, is again, like after those first four or five songs on energy, we don't get a, a sniff of that again, you know? And like just hearing them do just kind of like traditional house loops that is appealing to EDM fans and inoffensive to people in Macy's, but otherwise it's not that cool. Mm-hmm. That's just disappointing. It just feels below their talent, right? you know? So, yeah. I mean, as they, as, as they said, they're aware of what people say about them. So by all means, do what you got to do. I mean, it was kind of interesting hearing them talk about following Caracol. They really toured hardcore, as a lot of DJs do. And then they took a, a full year off and kind of traveled mm-hmm. and like reset. So they do seem to be in a good spot. And that's great, obviously. Think of what happened to someone like Avicii. But uh, at this point, disclosure, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping they're... Uh, they don't, they don't immediately go away again, given the state of the music touring business, because they're weird, and they can, yeah. they, they can probably impress pretty easily at this point, so I'm hoping that continues. Yeah, to, I guess just like my last thought, and I, maybe this summarizes what we're talking about more, is when you think about the artists who really dominate their, their sphere, that like house uh, disco pop sphere right now, it's, you know, Kygo and, and Marshmallow, like you mentioned, and Kygo really thrives off remixing old songs and adding like a more current you know edm flair and you know think about like the whitney houston higher love um, right. remix he did that's gotten a lot of acclaim but he, he's not doing anything original where disclosure really thrives is when they get to be themselves and be original and explore their art their art history their artistry mm-hmm. it's uh it's just really uh disappointing i think it, that they they are get so much you know, pressure to to be so down the middle when where they really thrive is being left, right, wherever else they are other than down the middle. So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, disclosure, energy, check it out. Give us your thoughts. We're going to move on to a movie before we wrap up today. 
with a, a very famous musical artist playing a pretty big role. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that in a second. But The Burnt Orange Heresy from mm-hmm. Giuseppe Capotondo, Capotondi. Capotondi. He's an Italian. Um, yeah, interesting movie. It was the closer at the uh, Venice International Film Festival last mm-hmm. year, 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, dropped in the States back in March. And then I think when COVID hit, it really... Uh, it, was, it was just starting like limited, limited release. And then COVID happened. So for a movie like this, that is appealing to a very specific demo and needs to have a very strategic release... COVID just completely cut it, cut its legs off, you know? And I think it got, it got released slowly again in August as theaters opened up, but just hit VOD past, uh, this past week. So, and that was probably for the best because this is a movie that uh, in today's climate has no, really no way to find an audience. Yeah. And I was left very mixed on this film. I think there's some really wonderful parts and then some parts that just fell totally, totally flat for me. Um, the the lead, Clace Bang, he's a Danish mm-hmm. actor and, and musician. Yeah. From um, Square, the international film. That's where he got really big recently. Uh, not not play- big to Americans. And he plays alongside Elizabeth Debicki. They're the, I guess, the, the two leads in this. And then mm-hmm. you have Mick Jagger and Donald Sutherland with, with some, some side roles. Um, Let's start with the good, Dave. What were the parts about this movie that you liked? I think it looks pretty nice. You know, yeah. this is based off a Charles Wilford novel. Apparently, in the novel, it takes place in Florida. Well, for this movie, they said, <laughs> "F that, we're going to Lake Como, brother," yeah. and just being at a random villa on the lake in northern Italy. Yeah, pretty nice. Yeah, you get to but- see some art on the wall. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. You know. I'm down yeah. with that. I think that about nice, uh, nice settings. You know, it's funny, it's funny for a movie that only takes place in a few places. There's only like there's what like maybe ten people that even speak in the movie. Like it's like low. It's like secretly modest, yet mm-hmm. it also takes place on Lake Cuomo. So I, I, I like the setting. I like the uh, the, the 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 way they made the visuals kind of pop with that. Um, I think Dubicki is just someone who has continued to give interesting performances even if the movies don't live up to her performances. And, and you know, I think, think of Widows, you know. Uh, she, mm-hmm. She's a very in-demand actress at this point, but just a really uh, tantalizing person whenever she's on screen. I think she's really talented, and I liked her a lot in this. Um, I also like Donald Sutherland because he seemed to be having a lot of fun as Debney. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the dialogue he is, he is uh, espousing is, was hard to follow at times, but it seemed like Sutherland was, was having a good time. Yeah. And even Mick, you know, Mick Jagger's in two scenes, but I don't know. He was kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, uh, he hasn't acted in like damn near 20 years, I think. Yeah. But so it's been a long time. I, I think Sutherland was by far the highlight for me because he, especially the scene where, um, well, the, the walk between, uh, his character, Jerome Debney and, uh, Berenice, uh, you know, mm-hmm. after, um james is like no no no, i can't i can't go i need to stay back and he tries to break into his house and find the paintings um you know i thought that scene was really good and he he kind of portrayed this like sweet very like nuanced character who and then they go to dinner and i think that's probably the, the scene i liked him the most in when 
he you know finally brings him into his workshop and is like yeah there's no paintings man and you just kind of see the guy like his wheels turning like i i don't have the stomach for this i was like all right this is like really top nuts not sutherland in my book especially for like late period sutherland he's that he's 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 sneaky like old as hell now by the way he's 85 he was old when the hunger game movies were being made yeah uh, he's he's up there man but mick jagger i just could not could not get out of the mindset. It's like, oh, this is Mick Jagger talking. Yeah. Oh, no way. <laughs> it was tough. Um, I wish they had almost just been like, you're just going to be Mick Jagger. Like, I, I, it could have been interesting. Well, and that's kind of the thing, though. It, he almost, <laughs> like, we, we associate with Mick Jagger, right, as someone who's lived a very hard life at this point, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this this kind of sleazy, perhaps criminal art dealer, mm-hmm. you know, kind of fits. Yeah. Kind of fits. I, I didn't find it that big of a walk. You know, this guy <laughs> living in this incredibly lavish home, more or less by himself, mm-hmm. and just kind of being a shady character. Yeah, kind of kind of feels like Mick could get there to me. Yeah. You know, but like I, I think this this is the script's kinda of weird with this movie. You know, it's like you have a hard time I, I had a hard time following what we were supposed to like think about some of the characters and like where we were going with the plot and i think once you get like i guess the twist about debney it's like huh and then next thing you know like the plot kicks in the high gear and you kind of see what's going to happen as james mm-hmm. is going to like lose, lose his mind, mind basically yep. like kind of at the beginning it's like to have these conversations and it's like the movie has this really like top level conversation in common about the value of art right and it's very obvious because the first scene is james literally stooping tourists in Milan about how I can convince you that art is incredibly beautiful just by spinning a yarn, even Mm -hmm. if I'm completely bullshitting you. Right. And then that, that very conversation ends up being what like Debney's career is. And then in turn, what James decides to take advantage of, like I had had a hard time in grasping, like what was like the main theme we were supposed to take away. Cause Again, it's like presented kind of obviously in the beginning and then kind of lost sight of it. But I still kind of like watching it. I think it was a pretty easy movie to watch. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, I I found it pretty um, engaging in parts. You know, like I I think especially like the third act as James is really like losing his mind and, you know, he like drowns uh, Berenice and then she somehow comes back to life and then he kills her again. Yeah, uh Jesus. and and that that whole part i it was hard to figure out if that was actually happening or if this was kind of in his head and i i think i think where the movie becomes really tough is it is very meta in a lot of ways where like you know when james is first driving berenice to the compound out and uh out in the lake there he says something like art is about the the lies that people tell and like the, the, the lies that people want to tell or so he has like some line i can't remember what it was but then like the more and more it goes then it becomes like all right james is actually like playing out this whole like theory and this mindset and what does it mean for something to have value what does it mean for art to be to have value it's all yeah. this uh very meta thing and um you know like the whole thing with the fly too right how there's like oh, a, right. Yeah. a fly in there and um yeah, it's just, it's just very, uh, it's almost like too heady, I think, in some ways. So, and that's the thing too. It's like seeing James succeed by presenting right. this Debney that he actually painted 
And it's like, huh, James, you were right. Even if you're probably fucked up and don't feel satisfied about this now, but you were right. But it's like the audience thinks you're a fucking scumbag now because you just murdered Bernice, mm-hmm. let alone lied to everyone else on top of that. So I don't feel satisfaction seeing that you technically are right. You know? Yeah. So yeah, the, the, it's like the meta convo maybe needed to be focused a little bit or changed. I'm not sure, but I think it's just a script that ultimately kind of fails to come together despite some interesting parts and ideas. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's worth, I think it's worth checking out. It's only like an hour and 40 minutes. So it's not mm-hmm. a super long watch. And like you said, I think Debicki is really good when she's on screen. Um, I kind of wish we had gotten a little bit more time with, with Berenice. I feel like, yeah. I feel like she brought probably the most like, sweetness to the movie which i think it needed a tinge more of it was a bit serious throughout but mm-hmm. overall um you know it, for a, a covid movie I, i'll call it a movie i've probably only watched at home because of covid not bad decent yeah. give it like a five five out of ten anyways we're gonna wrap up there what do we got for next week yeah next week is interesting we have the return of movies Again, technically, Tenet is playing 500 yards from me right now. I'm going to try and see it at some point. We'll see. Um, did offer New Mutants and Personal History of David Copperfield. Pat cannot do those things. So what Pat will see will be, I'm thinking of ending things. The Charlie Kaufman movie coming out on Netflix on Friday. Mm-hmm. Do rave reviews already. Very excited about that. Also, Mulan on PVOD via Disney Plus this Friday. Another hotly anticipated film. And we also have new music. Uh, Big Sean is dropping Detroit, too. It's been a while since Sean has dropped some stuff. So very interested to hear what that could be. A lot riding on that. And also, we may be getting a Lana Del Rey album on Friday. Lana, once again, uh, turned some heads in the wrong way recently, despite a warm reception to her album last September. So we'll see about that. Uh, yeah, That'd be interesting. We'll be talking <laughs> about it all. R.I.P. Chadwick, true king. See you next week. What up, guys? Dave here talking Tenet. Yeah, we're here. Tenet's out. Uh, it was supposed to come out on July 17th. It's finally out in some places. As you can tell, Pat is not here with me. I'm talking about the movie Solo. I live in Massachusetts. I had the privilege of seeing Tenet. Pat lives in New York theaters are still closed there they're still closed in california and other parts of the world so it's uh, an interesting time to be discussing a hotly anticipated film because tenet as a christopher nolan film has a lot riding on it you know i think this is in general was going to be an interesting uh movie and during normal times given that it's you know his most expensive film to date for example but i'm going to be talking the broad strokes no spoilers, but I will be discussing it broadly, a little more than the trailer. So if you're not in an area where you can see the film, maybe bookmark this, save this for later, come back. But I'm just going to discuss generally what I thought without getting too specific. And uh, I was lucky to see this movie uh, with a lately uh, added showtime at a theater close by. I was one of three people in the theater. So not nearly as risky as I think when other people are seeing. Um, I was definitely seeing lots of other packed show times. I did not get to see this in IMAX. I would have loved to see that considering this movie was shot on IMAX cameras. It actually would have added to the experience, but 
I took what I can get in terms of mitigating risk and saw it on a normal digital screen. So uh, during these times, you know, I think that's uh, okay. So yeah, you, you know, I, I would advise everyone to see this movie when they are comfortable and in general, avoid the spoilers. That'll probably get more and more challenging. But uh, yeah, Tenet, man. Uh, Christopher Nolan back at it again with a major summer blockbuster and you know i think a nolan movie like a tarantino film even though it's an original movie most of the time you know sans batman uh nolan tarantino they they're kind of their own ip right that's why they get the money they get to make big movies even if they're original so they're always almost not even the best example for uh, original filmmaking to me because they kind of already made it. They're kind of already in there. They're their own brands. Right. So it's always interesting to see how these movies are received and how people talk about them. And maybe one day there'll be a time when Christopher Nolan does not get massive budgets to make movies, but uh, I don't think that'll be the case after tenant tenants had a, a better than ex- uh, expected international gross thus far, 53 million internationally, which was above all the forecasts. So uh, it might be challenging for Warner Brothers to break even on this, given the massive spend. But there's an appetite for Taren- uh, for, for Nolan movies, so I think uh, hopefully that'll continue. But yeah, Tenet. Uh, it's weird because if you watch those trailers, right, they don't really give anything away. You don't have really have no idea what the plot is about. You just have this general spy heist aspect our lead characters John played by John David Washington and you're having a hard time deciphering what exactly the movie is about. You know, he's just trying to prevent something bad from happening. That's really the whole vibe you get from the trailers. And, you know, once you watch the film, you understand that this is a spy film and it's about, you know, preventing world war three, not a new idea, but because this is a Nolan movie, there are some interesting ways that uh, time is played with right think of memento inception even interstellar this is not a new idea for nolan but in tenet it really is the whole whole thing with the movie right moving forward and backward now, that's all i'll say on that but i think if you're a christopher nolan fan you will like tenet because it's everything you expect from nolan at his best especially the second half of nolan's career when he got much more bombastic and uh, started really feeling it, you know. Uh, it's an enthralling movie, just tons of spectacle, set pieces in every act. It's honestly a really thrilling watch, and I found it really gripping. And that's despite the fact that it moves at a very brisk pace, and especially in the beginning, it does not hold your hand. And I still found it very engaging, but I, that'll definitely be a pain point for some viewers. And, you know, I mean, you think of something like, inception which has detractors due to being able to follow and even dunkirk which i thought was kind of marvelous in the way it played with time in terms of the three uh you know storylines all taking place over a different stretch of time uh tenet <laughs> makes those movies look like you know they were made for kindergartners honestly but i think once you continue to watch tenet and you, and you, you roll with it you will begin to grasp what's going on and to me i found it very rewarding because once i start to pick up on it i you know you're just on for the ride and because it's a nolan film and because you know there's 
big backing from WB. Uh, it looks amazing. Uh, Hoyt Van Hoyt Hilton, the uh, cinematographer. Hoyt Van Hoytema, excuse me. Cinematographer for Interstellar, Dunkirk. He's back again. But interestingly, Hans Zimmer's not here at the score. We have Ludwig Goransson coming in. Still felt like a Zimmer-Nolan score to me. Uh, Goransson, of course, continues to rise following Mandalorian success and Black Panther and obviously coming off the Donald Glover uh, work earlier in his career. So the score really stands out, as you'd expect. And uh, because we have all this, this big budget, and the trailers might suggest this, tons of location shooting, right? We go to uh, the Malfi Coast in Italy. You go to Estonia and London and uh, Kiev and Mumbai uh, really stood out as well. Lots of awesome scenes at all, all those places. And uh, the whole, the whole like, blockbuster package you expect from Big Nolan uh, is here. And really, I think, adds to the film. And then, you know, probably the most exciting thing that a lot of people thought was just kind of the cast. And Nolan's had a great cast for, uh, you know, 15 years at this point. But uh, John David Washington, hot off of Black Klansman, he's great again. He's uh, playing our lead protagonist, literally. And uh, I think he does a really good job, especially in the beginning when, when the plot's really moving at a brisk pace and you're still trying to figure out what's going on. A lot of Bond vibes. He's a very debonair uh, figure. And I think the way he gives the line readings, even when they're similar to Inception, there are some more expository pieces of dialogue to just help explain the, the, the rules of the world to the audience. He, he's such a compelling uh, voice and you know, ni- nice to look at screen presence that I think it really works. And you know, kind of his handler, compatriot figure in the film. Uh, Neil is played by Robert Pattinson. Very exciting, of course, to see Pattinson return to a blockbuster role after his huge string of uh, indie success the last five, six years. And we know this will continue, of course, in the Batman. Uh, Pattinson, as you might, might imagine, once again, fantastic. I think he's, he's a really good foil to Washington, and they both kind of play off each other really well, really good chemistry. Uh, then Elizabeth Debicki, uh, has a really important central role as well in this. And I don't really want to speak on too much of that, but she is a strong female character in this and that has not always been Nolan's strength. So I think this is really good to see. She's a really central part of the film and her interplay with uh, both Washington and Pattinson as well as some other characters, I think really works. Um, Speaking of the rest of the cast, you have Kenneth Branagh in a major role. I think he's really effective. You have small roles from Himesh Patel, and uh, uh, Michael Caine, of course, coming in, uh, a classic, a, a Nolan cameo, as you expect. And then uh, probably the, the biggest standout to me was uh, Dimple Kapadia, who's a, a uh, Indian screen legend. Uh, she makes a, a, a very strong impression in this movie. And yeah, I mean, if, if you think about what, what you want from Nolan, I think this is it. And you can take that either way. If there's things that you've had a criticism with, uh, cr- criticism of Nolan in the past, uh, you know, narratively, logically, logic-wise, that might still be here for you. But the spectacle, the wow factor, the production values, and the cast, of course, all re- really shine. So to me, it's a really gripping film and definitely warrants repeat viewings like a handful of his other films do as well so looking forward to seeing that probably at a later date not going to go rushing back to the theaters given these times but 
Tenet definitely, I'd say it's definitely as advertised. So seek this movie out. And uh, if you've seen it, leave a comment below. I'd love to know what you think. Otherwise, uh, subscribe at youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. Once Pat finally sees it, he will be chiming in. We'll talk about the movie again, probably in greater spoiler detail. But otherwise, uh, stay tuned and let me know what you think. Yeah.